when I'm having conversations with some of our organizations and I talk about their black talent, I say things very directly like they're tired. You know, their guts have been ripped open and they come to work. You say to them, explain this to me, help me understand. How do you go to the victim and ask the victim to help you understand something? We're obviously living in a time that's full of uncertainty. But what decisions can we make to create more joy, connection, and solidarity, even at work? It's a question we're all facing right now. Welcome back to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman at Carney. One crucial element of joy at work is the idea of representation and belonging. True inclusion in the fabric of the workplace and our society. In our last episode, SAP Chief Marketing Officer Alicia Tillman talked about building a senior leadership team that more fully represented the employees and global customers they served. Today, I want to dig deeper into our collective aspiration for representation, diversity, fairness, and inclusion, further with a very special friend and fellow warrior on this topic, Crystal Ashby. Crystal has been an accomplished senior executive board member and lawyer with over 34 years of leadership success and has a unique vantage point for us. She is the president and CEO of the Executive Leadership Council, a membership organization for black CEOs, board directors, and the most senior black executives at Fortune 1000, Global 500, and equivalent companies. She leads the organization's efforts to increase the number and success of global black executives in C-suites, on corporate boards, and in global enterprises. And she was a participant in the very first class of ELC's very own Strengthening the Pipeline Leadership Development Program. Crystal, first, a very big welcome to you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, Alex, as you know. I've been looking forward to having you on this uh, podcast for our audience here. And I wanted to also first congratulate you on last week's CEO Game Changer Conference that I had the opportunity to listen into. I was very inspired by that dialogue that you led with along with a number of colleagues. And I think this is a good vantage point to actually probe some of those themes in our discussion today. But before we do that, let's get back onto a personal level here. This has obviously been a crazy year in so many dimensions. Where have you found your energy and your inspiration to get through this year? My personal inspiration has consistently and always come from the same place, and it was even more so this year, from my family. I'm very spoiled. I was very fortunate to have my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mother until I was 26. And then I had my grandmother until about two months ago now. She passed away recently at 97. The foundation that those three women gave me and the lessons and the stories that they taught me. And in a year like this one, where so much change has happened, where the Black community has been impacted so greatly from COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd, and now the issues we're dealing with in democracy, I think back on the life that my grandmother had and the stories she would tell me. You know, she was part of the Great Migration. She grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and she moved to Detroit. My grandfather had passed away. She had three beautiful small children, my mom and her two younger brothers. And she came to Detroit with her siblings, and she created a life for herself. She always wanted to be a mathematician. And interestingly enough, my great-grandfather didn't believe in education for his girls. And so she ended up, when she first moved to Michigan, she cleaned homes. But then she went, she wanted to be a nurse. So she became a registered nurse and had a fabulous career as a nurse. And then I look at my mom, who is 
one of the strongest women I know, but also has the biggest heart in the world. And she couples that true kindness with that strength. And so those are the places I go to when I really need true inspiration. Well, I mean, we have those great shoulders to stand on. How did you keep in touch with that support system, which is so important, of course? Well, I learned some seriously hard lessons this summer. My mother actually contracted COVID-19. Oh, wow. And I had to go home to Michigan to take care of her. I had to draw on everything they'd already given me because I had to pull my mother through the, the second part of her illness and then try to make sure that everyone else was taken care of at the same time because both my mother and my grandmother spend a lot of time taking care of a lot of people. And so this summer, having the conversations with my mom once she got better and talking through you know, how we as a family needed to manage through this disease. And then having conversations, my grandmother would tell you when President Obama was elected, she never thought she'd live to see a black man in office. She would also say she never thought she'd live to see us back in this place where we were fighting for the rights to get health care for everybody and the fact that people can't get tested. So I would listen to her talk about, from her perspective, how things should be and what kind of care people should be able to receive. You know, I consider her an expert in the space. She was a nurse for a very long time. So I definitely talked to her about it in the early days. And then, of course, lots of conversations while we were taking care of my mom. And then I think just also hearing their perspective. I am a child of the 60s. I was born in, in 61. But knowing that they lived through the riots and things and what was different about now and what was so jolting for them and what was different about George Floyd versus everything else we'd experienced before that. And I definitely had conversations with my grandmother on her perspective. And she used to say that we had an obligation and a responsibility to make sure that people listened this time because this time was different. And she also shared with me her perspective, and it's one that I really hold, that part of the reason why things are different now was because we were all quarantined at the time that this happened. So we were all attached to our, you know, our devices. We were all watching this. We could all see it happening, whereas we weren't seeing it replayed on the news. We were watching it being filmed live as that young lady broadcast it to all of us. You mentioned the importance of these stories. Everyone has a story. There's a generational obligation to tell the story, to give it truth, to give it visibility. Have you found opportunities, obviously in your day job and as your personal connections and your personal support network, to be able to transmit that and get even more power to the message by using your personal narrative? Your personal story is what makes it real for everybody. And everyone has one. It's also the thing that helps us connect to each other. Because you find the similarities. So, you know, I grew up in Detroit in the 1960s. I remember the 68 riots. I might have been very, very young. But during this time, I did talk about that. And I did talk about remembering the fires. And my stepfather worked at the corner store. And he was shot during one of the robberies during the riots of that year. And my grandfather coming home and telling us that this had happened and that we needed to go to the hospital. And I remembered him saying he'll never be the same. So I, I fast forward now to watching young black men, black women being shot and remembering that happening to him and remembering my grandfather's position about it and what he said so clearly to all of us and recognizing that every family who experiences that will never be the same and why we have to make sure it stops. When I think about it through my sister's lens, having to tell my 17-year-old nephew who drives, I don't care what happens, just get home alive. Driving while black has been in existence for a long time. It's just become more pronounced because we have the ability to record it and see it now. 
We didn't have the same abilities back then, but the stories are there. The stories about being passed over for promotions, the stories about being looked at when you walked into someplace where black people didn't typically go, the stories around having to figure out how to go to work every day and do the job that you had committed to do and do well while feeling everything you're feeling about what's happening to your people in the world. I mean, if you think about it, when I was born, there were probably still places where there were signs that said colored people drink from this fountain and white people drink from that fountain. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah, I mean, we're all vulnerable as humans. We're all humans as well. We share 99.7% of the same DNA. But your point about in 2020 in particular, this confluence of civics lessons, history lessons, people lessons has all come together. Has this year changed the way you look at your own leadership style? I think it's enhanced everything I've always been. And it's also made me less apologetic. And by that, it means I'm less inclined to put excuses around things. I'm more inclined to make my asks more clearly. I'm more inclined to be more direct about how I really see things and what I think people should be doing. For instance, you know, if you make an ask, it would be nice if you did. No, now I'm like, you need to recognize that you have to make this change and it's not an option. When I'm having conversations with some of our organizations and I talk about their black talent, I say things very directly like they're tired. You know, their guts have been ripped open and they come to work and you say to them, explain this to me, help me understand. How do you go to the victim and ask the victim to help you understand something? It's about being very, very clear on where I stand as an accomplice. And you and I have had this conversation. We talk about allies all the time. I'm here because I'm willing to stand by you as you go on whatever the journey is to get to where we need to be, because I believe in the action that has to happen. It's made me more concerned about my team because it's a lot to manage. It's a lot to have gone remote. It's a lot to engage day to day. Some people live alone. You know, we have a lot of issues around making sure people are okay emotionally. The stress of being in a, a situation where you don't have the same kind of human contact that you used to have. I think the other piece around that is just how are you making sure and I'm sure you already recognize this because I, I, I think we might have even had a conversation about it. The hours are longer. The days are longer. You know, we used to get up and there was a period of time where you spent transitioning to work. And then you, you worked and you got up and you walked around. You might have gone downstairs and gotten a coffee. You might have gone and gotten lunch. You had to leave at a certain time because you had to catch a train, a plane, automobile, whatever it was to get home. But now you roll out of bed and if you don't have a day where people are looking at you, you can keep on the same clothes and you start working and maybe you break to eat. Maybe you go to the restroom and then at the end of the day, you might stop to have a meal, but you can be just back online. And so how are we making sure that people are okay emotionally, that people's mental health is being cared for through this process? It's not that it's, it's more empathetic, but I'm more attuned to when something it doesn't seem quite right about someone on the team. Well, that's very powerful because on the one hand, you need the stamina for this journey of change, which has gone upward and forward and hopefully accelerating, as you've mentioned and you've been spearheading. But there's also, as you point out, the spiritual exhaustion, the physical exhaustion. And when you mention having honest, clear, direct conclusions, actions, asks, that probably helps relieve some of the negative energy. I like that a lot. I want to come to your, your day job, the, the ELC, the Executive Leadership Council, and you've been very charitable in calling me an accomplice, but it's another way of saying allyship and using that forum, which I think our 
listeners would like to hear a little bit more about what you do and how you do it, but how to get allyship across corporate America, the whole social fabric. What we have to understand is that this time in America is is different for some reason. And the Executive Leadership Council, as you know, is an organization that's made up of about 814 members. That's not, a, that's not an about, it's an exact number. We have 814 members, and it's an organization that's comprised of CEOs, C-suite executives, corporate board directors, entrepreneurs that play in a big space. It's a member organization. And while those members are actively working and doing great things and in big roles and having great jobs, they also are Black people who come to work every day from a community. They support their families. They are doing what they're doing so that they can live the lives that they hoped that they would have. And when you think about the corporations and you look at what happened this year, we've always been engaged in our purpose and our mission, which was to advance Black talent, to advance ourselves into the C-suites, to advance ourselves on corporate boards, to develop the talent so that they were there to be advanced. In the Fortune 500, there are only four Black male CEOs. We make up 14% of the population. And then if you extrapolate out and you look at C-suites, you look at corporate boards, the seats are very, very small. And so what's the rationale for that? You look at a situation like COVID-19 that adversely impacts the African-American community, and then you pivot to a situation where a man gets murdered. And for the first time after I don't know how many murders, everyone in the world stops and says, okay, wait, there's something wrong here. There's something really, really wrong. And it's not just in the U.S. The world has, has stopped. And then you say, so how do you turn this into not a moment, but a movement? And that's not, it's not my phrase. Everybody uses it. It's been said a million times. And then you watch the extraordinary statements that are made by corporations. And you watch the dollars that are being donated to social justice and equal justice issues. And then you say, okay, but we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been talking about the change that needs to happen. We've been talking about diversity and inclusion. We've been saying it's nice to do. Well, it's a business imperative. So now you're in a situation where everyone in your own house is looking at you and saying, okay, how do we make our internal organization better? Because we have microaggressions. We have Amy Cooper working here, and I deal with her every day, and no one recognizes this. So it's how do we help the partners that we have, our member companies, and the different CEOs and C-suite executives who say it has to be different this time. And I think you've heard me say, Alex, that if you aren't hearing something that gives you a moment for pause, you haven't asked all the right questions. Because you should be hearing things because no entity is devoid of this issue. It is a part of the fabric of who we are. And the conversations I've been having is about, so what is the change you want to see? What do you want to be different? And if that's what you want, how do you make it a business imperative like every other business imperative? You know this, what gets measured is what gets done. So how do you now take what you believe needs to change in your organization and pivot to a place where delivery is happening? How does the transparency affect that? The disaggregation of the data so you really can say, because we can talk about you know diversity. There's been a great change in the diversity numbers potentially, but if you disaggregate the data, one of the things you're going to find, and you know this as well as I do, the gender piece will actually skew the numbers greatly. You have to break it out by black, brown, Latinx, LGBTQ, Asian, you know, Native American. You have to look at those individually because that gives you the true story about how you're doing. And I suspect when you do that, not everybody's doing as well as they thought. Because let's be honest, if you talk about diversity and inclusion, white women have been the beneficiaries of it 
for years. They are the number one beneficiary of a diversity inclusion environment. And so what we're saying is we're not here to judge you. We're here to help you change that narrative if that's what you really want to do. A couple of things that jump out to me, Crystal. One was your linkage of for us to have a proper workplace and society, we need to harmonize both justice as well as the joy for all the constituents. Yes, there's a business case, but there's also a people case. The other piece I thought was really compelling was the notion of having the courageous, uncomfortable conversations between outsider and insider, minority and majority, dominant versus non-dominant. Have you seen that accelerating in the member organizations and the communities that they and you touch? I think it's accelerating and I think it's continuing because people are so open to the opportunity to have the conversation. I I was on a call earlier today and someone said their company has had some 3,000 of those conversations. And obviously, the larger your organization, the more conversations you're going to have. But I think the the point that they were making was that there were some initial conversations, and then they went back and they dug back in. And what's happening is people are not just having the group conversations, but now it's the conversations that are happening in the smaller groups. It's the conversations where people are sharing exactly how they feel, and people are being heard, and people are knowing that they're being heard. There's a term that's being used a lot lately, which is belonging. It's how are people finding their real space in their organization? How are they finding their ability to be authentic, to be themselves, to bring their whole selves to work? But the conversations that people are having are accepting the fact. And I think some of the ones that are going the best, and I think you may have done this yourself, is where the admission is, we're not going to get it right right away. This is not something that's going to change overnight. This is a real journey we're going to have to commit to being on. And we're going to have to continue to come back and have the conversation. We're going to have to admit when we were wrong. We're going to have to admit when the mistake was made. We're going to have to ask how we change it and fix it. But we're all going to do it together. And it starts at the top of the house. You know, every CEO has to own this for it to be believed. We all know when we would roll out diversity and inclusion initiatives and it would get stuck because somebody would say, I have 10 things that I'm supposed to do. This one's not on my performance contract, so it's not going to happen. How do you actually make this a living thing for each one of your employees. Everybody has to be committed to it. Everybody has to understand their role in it. Because what people are now doing is seeking to really understand. You mentioned something at the very outset, Crystal, about the definition of engagement and belonging. The other thing I've seen also is the companies and cultures need to actually measure that at the workforce level. That's something I've also seen happening now. People are actually directly having global engagement surveys. They're actually using the data to have these conversations in the hallway and in the offices, virtually or otherwise. I think that's critical that everyone's position or opinion or thought matters. No matter where you start in the organization, no matter where you end in the organization, all those opinions matter. We've all been a part of the surveys, pulse surveys is what we used to call them, the pulse survey where they ask you the questions. But if you think about it, what were the questions that were being asked? I think that people are also asking different questions now because the conversations they're having are revealing, I've been asking the wrong things this entire time. I'm not going to get the truth of what's really going on in the organization unless I ask different questions. And I think different questions are being asked, but you also have to make it so that people believe that what they're going to put down on paper, what they're going to take their time to sit down and really share with you is going to be listened to. And that's the loop that's happening now. This is what I heard. This is the reaction to it. This is what the action needs to be about it. And this is how we're going to conquer it. 
in it again. This is what we said two months ago we were going to do. This didn't happen, and this is the reason why, but we're still going to do it. You can't just assume everybody's still on the journey with you if you're not bringing them with you. And I think that's the other thing that's happening between the surveys and the conversations. People are being brought along this time as opposed to everybody feeling like it's happening someplace other than with them. How do we get common ground? Like we talked about reconciliation. How do we reconcile while reckoning? That is the biggest question for all of us. And I think that is where the commitment has to come in. And by that, I mean the personal commitments. It can't be the organization is committed to do X or Y or Z. It has to be owned individually. And it has to be spoken about from that perspective. It has to be shared from the place of, I'm not talking to you as your boss or your, you know, your manager. I'm talking to you as a human being who spends a huge percentage of my time with all of you every day, which means a huge percentage of my time every week, which means a huge percentage of my time every year. I am talking to you as a person that comes to this conversation with you. you. You would have heard at Game Changers last week uh, when I was introducing Brian Cornell and David Taylor. We got past the, the titles to the fact that they said, look, let's just talk about the fact that we're people who care. That's what has to happen to make it more sustainable. You know, we can talk about scorecards. We can talk about the fact that people need to be transparent. But at the end of the day, and it goes to why I love the fact that this is joy, at the end of the day, it's how people make you feel when you come into that space every day. And that's something each person has to own individually. Each person has to own it individually. Each person has to, to speak to it individually. And that's how it gets better. I sit on the board of the University of Michigan College of Engineering, and one of the things we often talk about is tenured professors. Because once someone gets tenured, they, you know, they can do whatever they want, right? What is the mechanism that makes someone want to do something? It has to be personal appeal. It's their belief in the reasons why the behavior has to change. And so we have to continue to make the compelling case for people personally and individually why this has to be different and how it's adversely impacting everyone when it's not. You know, that whole ownership thing, that whole power thing, that's a piece that has to be wrestled to the ground. And the conversation has to be started by people who have the power right now. Unlocking and unblocking has to be a key priority of any leader, team leader, top leader, country leader. And I think the joy point is something obviously near and dear to both of us. Why settle for anything less? You can have it all if you really have that bigger picture. I think you've got a big picture view from this year, obviously tested in the crucible of three, four crises in seven or eight months in a part of a longer journey. I'm sensing hope, though, and optimism. I see a smile. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're going to be past 2020 pretty soon. Well, I mean, what, when you look back, what do you think will be different? What do you think you look forward to in the new year and the new seasons ahead? One of the things you hear a lot of people saying right now, and I think this goes to the, oh, I wish things could return to normal. And I don't hold that position. In some respects, I think some of the things we're going through in the world right now is because we needed to pause and we needed to rethink and reevaluate. And we should not come out the same as we went into this. We should learn the lessons. We should have spent the time really digging deep and saying, how do we make this place a better place for everyone across from zero to however old you are, whatever your life experience is, how do we make this better? And I believe that in the current environment, people are really asking themselves that question. 
people are really pausing. I believe that people want better and and people may struggle with what is better or how to get there. But I think the commitment to making sure we come out of 2020 or however long the tail is on this particular set of issues, stronger, wiser, more in touch with humanity, more in touch with each other, more connected to each other. Because if you think about what's the one thing everybody I think is missing, I don't even care if you're a hermit. People are missing connectivity. People are missing the ability to be in the same space with each other, to hug each other, to touch each other, to talk to each other, to be live. What do we all have to do to make that change happen? Would I say I hope the conversation of race ends and we never have to have it again? No. And the reason I say that is because I believe if it ends, we'll become complacent and we will have forgotten and we won't tell the history so it doesn't happen again. There's an adage that the the reason history repeats itself is because you didn't learn the lessons you were supposed to learn. I believe the way we are all approaching this is because we want to learn the lessons because we don't want to be here again. So it would be great not to have the need for the conversation, but to have the conversation in such a way that it becomes a real living part of the fabric. It becomes a sustainable piece of the history so that people understand it. I think these steps towards accountability, transparency, action that we're seeing, the comfort levels that people are starting to have about really saying how they really feel about these things, the hard conversations, things not being swept under the rug, it will be hard to turn that water faucet off. And, you know, I'm not saying it's not done respectfully. I'm not bullying anybody into stepping forward and saying we're going to be better as a people. But I think that we won't have to fight to have the conversations. We won't be as afraid to have them. Things will get resolved more quickly because they'll come to the forefront faster. You know, when I think about the people I admire as we're on this journey, and I've talked about some of the executives I've had the pleasure of talking to recently, but I admire my fellow Black executives who have been dealing with this every day, their entire careers. And they've still gone to work every day and they've still been excellent and they've still done the jobs that they were hired to do. And they've still fought for the organizations that they believe in, regardless of what they brought from home that day. And those are sort of the heroes in all of this. This all happened this summer, but we are still staying the course and we still believe in the commitments that we've made. And that's why I think I have joy, because a word that gets used a lot right now is resilience. I think we are a resilient people. But I live for the day when that's not a term that's being used to describe our ability to bounce back from anything. This time continues to seem different. And that's where my hope is from. You know, I'm with you on this. I wrote an article about the 60-year cycle, quoting John Lewis about this is not one thing or another thing. It's not this month or next month. This is something that's almost endemic to the human cause, right? Human life. It is. And as he would say, you know, we've got some good trouble to get into to make sure that all of that comes to pass. But the lessons our leaders tried to teach us are the lessons we're still learning. This set of leaders is teaching a new set of lessons. And their set of lessons may be harder because the demand for transparency, the demand to engage, the demand to do it differently, the demand for change, I think makes this leadership time, I won't say more challenging but more impactful because the results of this change in leadership by everyone, the results are far more reaching than I think changes in leadership styles or issues have had in the past. If we can, as leaders, embrace this time and actually implement change, be visionary, be transformative, be bold with the actions that we take, put stakes in the ground and say, we're going to achieve this at all costs, that's going to be the significant piece of it. 
If we don't do it that way, we'll be right back to where we were. And nobody wants to do that. And I think that's the other piece that drives it. You have to always think about what the alternative is. And the alternative isn't a place any of us are prepared to go back to. Well, Crystal, I'm very proud to walk side by side with you and learn side by side with you on this topic and others. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of a especially busy couple of weeks, I know for you. Thanks a lot. No, and thank you. And, and what I would just say in closing is everyone should find some joy in every day. And if you haven't at the end of the day, pause because you missed it. So don't miss it when it happens. If you're looking for ways to build more connection and solidarity at work, subscribe to Joy at Work wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding hope and joy through your work. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have questions you'd like us to answer this season, please email us at joy at carney.com. Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward even during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joy at work.